we approach the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Loving and all-forgiving God, we confess that we're far more comfortable with the word in our own hearts that we preach to ourselves rather than your word that you speak to us. Lord, would you forgive us for seeing your commands as unrealistic and outrageous? Fill us with your spirit, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. We have a strange dynamic in this country. It's ironic in some ways. We have this enshrined doctrine of the separation of church and state. And yet, if you think historically and even in our present, it's kind of impossible to think of the United States without also acknowledging the convergence of the church with that entity called America. At least insofar as it represents what we think, is, have, think of as true America. And that's kind of true for everybody, whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right or somewhere along that spectrum. We all believe that our perspective somehow holds more faithfully to the true American ideal. And good, faithful, moral church people, without a lot of hesitation on our part, we tend to position ourselves somewhere along the line of these political ideologies, don't we? But maybe we've tricked ourselves. Maybe we've tricked ourselves into thinking that being a good Christian is pretty much the same thing as being an American. Or at least a good American. Think about it for a second. Americans are people who value education, hard work. We love overcoming problems. We take action. We improve life and we're sensitive to our fellow human beings. And the contemporary church, well, for the most part, sounds very similar to all of that. From the time they're very young, we teach our children the great moral lessons of learning and taking action to get things done and improving their lives through moral performance. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Be a good girl in school. And we teach them to be nice and sensitive to everyone. And I'm not saying any of those lessons in and of themselves are bad. They are not. But the outcome, observable in most churches, is it becomes very difficult then to distinguish between the kingdom of God and what it means to be American. There are lots of ways we can pick up on this phenomenon. One that is particularly fascinating to me is just to listen very carefully to the way the non-church person talks about the church. I remember many years ago having a conversation with someone in another country, not a Christian. She wasn't holding back uh, in her critique of Christians and the church, uh, which I'm always fascinated by how much people who are not in the church know about the church, but be that as it may, one of her criticisms was how radically out of touch the church is with society, she said. She said, we are, the church, is an ivory tower 
where people who need an emotional and psychological crutch, they isolate themselves because they can't handle real life and real people who have real problems. And I wanted to say, hey, I'm talking to you, aren't I? <laughs> I didn't, of course, I didn't say that. Here was my real defense. I remember very clearly saying this to her. I said, wait a minute. The church does all sorts of goods for society. We feed the hungry. We establish hospitals. We stand against racism, sexism, discrimination of all kinds, sometimes. We're against what you're against, I said. And we're for what you're for. So don't be so critical, since what you like is exactly what we are. Hmm. Now, of course the church is to feed the hungry and stand against the marginalization of the weak and the outcast. No question about that. But the church as a countercultural movement created by God to participate with Him in righting the ship and resetting our world toward that kingdom of God that that world doesn't know, doesn't do that, doesn't accomplish that, by joining in whatever societal forces happen to be in vogue at the time. That is not our mission. That's not the way we go about it. Christianity isn't just an organized, non-profit mechanism for getting what we want in the world. Even if we glance at the church landscape today, we can very quickly see that by and large, she has adopted one of these viewpoints, a mechanism for getting what we want in the world or a power to determine or to win the day by crushing our opponents. Either the church has become a voice for the left so that liberalism and church become virtually synonymous, or she has become a conduit for the right so that autocratic power and silencing the enemy become touchstones for the true kingdom of God. And either way, Jesus gets used as a hammer to pummel the other side. The Sermon on the Plain, which is what Luke is recording here for us, is a clearing of the decks for the American church. If nine out of ten Americans believe in God, our gospel reading this morning tells us something about God and Christianity that nine out of ten could never sign up to. Clearing of the debts is an interesting phrase. According to the authoritative history of the world, Google, it was originally a naval term referring to the removal or fastening of everything that would hinder an effective battle. Going into battle means ridding ourselves of anything that would distract us from our enemy. There is a laser focus both of our role and the desired outcome. That's what a clearing of the depths is. And when it comes to Jesus, I believe we need a clearing of the depths. Jesus might get a lot of accolades and fanfare from Christian and non-Christian alike for his healing, for his words of love, 
to the poor and sinful and anything else on offer that we happen to agree with. When he walked the earth, the crowds followed him, often surrounded him to the extent that he could barely move. And even today, a lot of non-Christian friends of yours will, will, will have lots of good things to say about Jesus. But Jesus wasn't a crowd kind of guy. He spent a lot of effort driving away the crowds and saying hard truths like, you're only following me for more signs and wonders. Or, you just want to get your belly full. Those are words from Jesus. I didn't make that up. And eventually that kind of talk got him killed. And so, in order to get the point of what his kingdom is truly like, Jesus had to clear the decks. We're in a war. He wants us to know. Remove and fasten down everything. The battle is coming. It won't be easy. In a war, there will be winners and losers. And if you want to be a winner, you have to take aim at the right enemy with the right ammunition. Clear the decks. And here's the ammunition, Jesus says, with which my kingdom will overthrow my and your enemies. Here it is. And friends, if we miss everything else about Jesus, we might squeak by, but we can't miss this one. If we miss this one, perhaps everything is lost. Here it is. Love your enemies. And lest we think just saying we love them is enough, he says, do good to them. Jesus never lets us off the hook. Bless them. Pray for them. When they steal from you, never mind not shooting them, but offer them more than they took in the first place. I mean, can you imagine that? How absurd is this? Hey, I know you can't carry it now, but drop off the computer and jewelry that you're taking from me in the car and come back and get the china before you go. That's what he says. Give money to anyone who asks. And if you loan money to anyone, don't even expect any in return, much less any interest on top of the loan. Were you squirming when the gospel reading was being read? This is uncomfortable for us, isn't it? Our very economy is built on the idea of making money off of loans. So it's strange, even foolish, to think that we would give with absolutely no strings attached. None. But even in the church, we talk about investing in this ministry or that ministry. I was relieved when Pete did not use that term when he was talking about money. We talk about investing, even in the church, which seems to me to to be importing an alien concept into God's kingdom. Investors expect returns, don't they? Givers, on the other hand, well, givers know it's not theirs anyway. And God gets to do whatever He wants with our money, even if people use it in a way that we wouldn't prefer. So givers just release it. They don't ask any questions. 
See, built into the church's DNA from Jesus himself is the regular practice of losing money, control over that money, losing return on investment, no positions of power because of money, and on and on and on. It's the opposite of the way our world wins. I mean, it sounds like our religion is kind of a religion for losers. Yeah, this sermon on the plane from Jesus isn't normal. This isn't something that must, this is something that must originate from outside ourselves. We'd never come up with this on our own. Everything in our world says to view our enemies with suspicion, speak ill of them and their ideas, return violence with violence in order to justify some end that sounds desirable or noble. You know, there's a lot of talk about justice these days, and rightly so. But I wonder, I wonder if our desire for justice can quickly turn into vengeance without even being aware of that subtle shift. Jesus says to the one who shames, abuses, attacks, gossips, steals from you, return to them love, money, possessions, good deeds, and prayer. I wish I could help us wiggle our way out of this. Maybe there's a Greek word for love or bless in this passage that we don't know about that would soften the blow. No. He makes it as plain as possible. Love, give, bless, pray. And if you do all this, this is the phrase that jumped out at me. This is the one that bothers me the most. If you do all of this, you will be children of the Most High. Now what? Sounds like Jesus is saying that the ones who live this way, like losers who lose to their enemies, they're the ones who are truly connected to God. Now, let's be honest. You don't have to be a Christian to fight racism, sexism, poverty, and discrimination. If we're Christians, we certainly should fight all of those, but really, Anybody can sign up for that battle. And these days, it's easy to get the approval of the non-church world, the non-Christian world, waving that banner. But Jesus clears the decks. And he says, the ones who are truly following me, their enemies have become the objects of their affection, of generosity and prayer. Do that, and we'll be children of the Most High. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. I don't get any eternal credit for loving the people that love me and delighting in hanging out with people that I get along with? That sounds strange. Perhaps we would need to take some time 
to interpret Jesus' words. However, I do think we get his point. All of us do this. We love people who love us. It doesn't take divine intervention from the Son of God to get people to do that. But this is a difficult word that not only sounds impossible, but makes us uncomfortable, upset, and maybe even a little bit angry. A thought experiment for the moment. Just take a moment. Think of that person who's done you wrong. I mean, a real scoundrel. Cheated you out of money, bullied you at school, slandered your good name, quit on you when you thought you had a friend. Are they there? They're in your mind? I know they are. Now, imagine taking them a meal just because you showed up on their doorstep. Imagine praying for them daily by name. Imagine speaking well of them in public to others. Can you now feel how outrageous this command is from Jesus? Years ago, I used to tell people, rather flippantly, that if there's a person who's hurt them or someone they consider an enemy, just start praying for them regularly because, here's what I'd say, I'd say, it's hard to be angry with someone you're praying for. I think that was just one of those things I heard somewhere along the way, <laughs> honestly. And I just repeated it because I probably didn't know what else to say at the time. But now that I'm older, and I've been in church for a good while, with some authority, I can tell you that is not necessarily the case. Look, the depth of the pain and the anger, that will take years to eradicate. And the way our hearts are, we can even think we're all over it. In the past. And all of a sudden, someone will say something, we'll hear a song, we'll be sifting through emails and we'll find one that triggers us. We just be driving along and all of a sudden it pops into our head. And we're transported back to all those feelings that caused us to view that person as an enemy in the first place. And as we're driving along thinking about it and nursing those feelings, our foot starts to hit the accelerator a little faster and we lean forward and no, this is not a personal testimony. <laughs> See, being a, being a real Christian who loves enemies is never something we master. We are always, over and over, becoming a Christian each day by expressing faith in Christ and living as losers who love their enemies. And some of you have felt this deeply. Some of you have been traumatized. You've been traumatized by a mother or a father, a teacher, a pastor, the betrayal of a friend that hurts very deep, and the ripple effect on other parts of your life is incalculable. 
And this kind of command from Jesus sounds overwhelming. I get it. But I don't want to leave you without hope. The truth is, this passage is less about what Jesus is requiring of us and more of a window into what our God is truly like. Be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. That's the key to the whole text. This is the same Father who insisted that Adam and Eve not destroy themselves even after they had turned their back on Him and ate the fruit. This God is the one who dragged the Israelites kicking and screaming through two rivers and a wilderness into the promised land, demanding their peace and prosperity. This is the God who dines with prostitutes. The God who throws parties for the lost children who thumb their nose at the ones who love them and waste their lives on infantile distractions. This is the God who prepares a feast in the presence of his enemies. This God greets his torturers and executioners with prayers for forgiveness and mercy, even if they don't ask for it. And this God looks his betrayers, who are also his disciples, in the eye and says, You lead my church. Do you see? What Jesus commands in this sermon is simply another way of saying, be like God, because this is what God has done and is doing for you. Who am I to hate that person when God has not done that to me? And we might think that the winners in this world are the ones who are crushing their enemies. But Jesus seems to believe that God has established a divine way where the losers are actually the winners. That's the real world. The real world isn't the dog-eat-dog -dog world of perpetual violence and drawing our battle lines. That world is the anomaly, the misshapen abnormality that has obscured the way the world both is and is meant to be. God is in the business of being compassionate to his enemies to people like us. And you're saying, prove it, Jason. Prove that God does this. Here's bread. A broken body. The tangible, physical sign that God would rather die than see you lost. Here is His blood. In a cup. Death for him, life for us. The message is clear. God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. When we consume these elements, we are consuming the Spirit of Christ. And may it fill our hearts with the power to be the all-forgiving, enemy-loving, self-sacrificing, compassionate people of God, just like our Father in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.